Welcome everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold, and I appreciate you joining me this morning. Uh, if you could, please share the show, like the show, give the thumbs up, the stars, the reviews. All those things help to, I guess, make the formulas and the analytics on the internet to uh, work and help uh, this show to get out to more people. So it's all it's all magic, but... Anyways, I just uh, thank you for uh, for your help and all of that. So we're continuing our study on Lex Rex, the law is the king. But as always, always want to begin with a law of the day. So if you want to follow along with your copy of scripture, we are going to be in Deuteronomy 19.14. Here is what the law says. You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. All right, that's pretty short, pretty short law. And there's a couple of supporting passages in book of Proverbs. One such passage is Proverbs 23, 10 through 11. Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. And looking at the context of this law, we see that landmarks were the primary and often only way to determine uh, property boundaries, property lines between neighbors. And a land boundary could be selected and measured by a natural landmark, such as a, a mountain or a river, something like that. So, for example, in Genesis 15:18, when God speaks to Abraham, he promises him that his descendants will inherit the land. And he references um, several, several rivers um, as the boundary markers of the, of the land, of the promised land. We also see in Scripture that a landmark could be man-made. And a good example of this is in Genesis 31, in the covenant form between Laban and Jacob. And starting in verse 44, this is what Laban uh, says to Jacob, he says, Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid. And Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and pillar which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me. To do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. All right, so in that example, we see quite clearly um, this man made landmark is serving as a covenant witness, and it's a witness to multiple multiple aspects. You got, you have the aspect of, of taking care of one's uh, daughters, 
uh, not oppressing them or doing harm to them. And then, of, you, of course, you have a, a boundary where, where each party will not cross over in vi- to do the other violence uh, through that boundary. So landmarks served not only as boundary markers, but testimony or witnesses to historical events, uh, agreements, covenants between two parties. And this is particularly important in an era where writing and paper was not as widespread or prevalent, because landmarks don't really deteriorate as easily. Now, moving on to some application, you have quite clearly the idea of theft. To move a landmark was a way to steal property from someone. Today, the importance of landmarks remains the same, because in real estate, you have to know the boundary of the property that you're trying to purchase or sell. And how do you know that? Well, sometimes there are metal stakes or or some kind of other stone or metal marker that indicates the boundary of a property. And you can also use the coordinate system, you know, whether it's a, you know latitude, longitude, or something like that. And either way, in order to own property, you have to know what the boundaries are and who's responsible for what. So that's the property, the, the, the theft aspect of, uh, of landmarks. But there's also a historical cultural aspect here too. And it's a point that's often less considered by folks because it's key that, that we need to honor previous covenants and historical events. There's no doubt to the importance of this. Uh, just think, for example, of the memorials that we have to Pearl Harbor and to 9-11. Both of them are indicated by physical objects that are put in a particular place. For the Pearl Harbor Memorial, you have the Arizona and other battleships there. For 9-11, you have uh, the, uh, the objects that are replacing the two towers that had fallen. And the purpose of all of these memorials is to not forget what happened in the past and to avoid making the same mistakes or to falling into the same situation that resulted in those things happening. And these things are also built uh, to provide an appreciation for those who lived and responded in that time period, in that situation, and to give a healthy humility uh, for the current generation that they would respect those that came before them. And another good example is the Holocaust Memorial, which is to remember the darkness and evil that mankind is capable of, and to remember the past, learn from it, and make different decisions for the present and the future. So the importance of memory is clearly seen throughout all scripture, because God continually calls his people to remember their past. He almost always introduces himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's, that introduction is almost always given when God is speaking to the people of Israel. So he wants them to not forget who they are, who they belong to, and what they are supposed to be doing uh, in, this, in this world, in the land. So in a sense also, the temple was the perfect landmark. Whenever they saw the temple, they were to remember everything that God had told them. And that was a fixed uh, location that they were to go to on a regular basis. Um, so to remove or destroy landmarks is also not just 
a theft of property or destruction of property, but it's also seeking to destroy history, either the history of a particular agreement, such as between uh, Laban and Jacob, or uh, property boundary history, such as the, the land given to, to Abraham, or the history of a people and a culture, okay? And the reason why you would destroy or move a landmark is to, you know, for, for historical reasons, is because you're either ashamed of the past or you're hateful toward it. You want to purge and forget. Um, now, I'm not saying that destroying or removing landmarks is always wrong. I don't think the law in the Bible is saying that um, every instance of removing a landmark is always absolutely wrong and uncalled for. Um, we see a couple of examples of God commanding and or doing these things. So God destroyed the temple. After the death of Christ, we see in 70 AD that the Romans, they come in, they destroy Jerusalem, and they destroy the temple. And this was this was prophesied by by God. It was part of his plan. He had ordained it, and it was a it was a judgment upon the people of Israel. Uh, we also see that God commanded Israel to tear down certain objects in the land of Canaan. Now, these these were, of course, religious objects. They were, uh, you know, the Asherah poles, uh, those trees, or the pillars of Baal. Um, they were to tear down those altars that the Canaanites were um, were using in the land. Now, of course, there was a a current idolatrous aspect to those landmarks, but they were also cultural and historical as well. So, I mean, ultimately, landmarks need to be either established or destroyed based on God's standard, and whether or not those landmarks serve to perpetuate idolatry and wickedness, that's going to be a key judgment mark as far as what's the standard we use for removing or, or building landmarks. So that is um, our law for the day. So uh, let's now continue with our discussion of Lex Rex. As a reminder, we are on chapter 18. And for those who are not familiar, perhaps Lex Rex is The Law is the King, written by Samuel Rutherford in the 1600s, Puritan man, and uh, one of the um, members of the Westminster Assembly who published the Westminster Confession of Faith. And uh, this book set the stage for John Locke's later book and certainly influenced the American War for Independence. Now, the question, now we're getting to some of the really uh, meaty questions of the book. Uh, you know, the first part of the book is laying the foundation, but now we're getting into kind of the practical application. And so this question is, is uh, chapter 18. When resisting a ruler, should there be a distinction between the person and the office of the ruler. Now, that's an important point that Rutherford brings up, and he, of course, says yes. He says that resisting an illegal or tyrannical action of someone who is the ruler is not necessarily disobedience to the office as ordained by God. Um, and he goes on to lay out some important caveats. Number one, one abuse of power does not automatically disqualify a person from holding office. Um, and uh, a legitimate ruler might inadvertently perform a tyrannical act, maybe even several, but that doesn't automatically turn him 
into a tyrant. Rulers are to be honored, revered, and obeyed for the sake of their office that they hold. But Rutherford also points out, when authorities command and kill in accordance with standards that are in opposition to God, they should not be obeyed or submitted to in those instances, but they could still be obeyed in other circumstances. Uh, So, I mean, we see examples of this in our lives today. As a father, I am not authorized to command my children to sin or to sin against my children. And if I sin against them, they, they can remind me and call me out on my sin. Of course, they're to do that with honor, reverence, and, and, and obedience, an obedient heart, but they, they don't have to comply with uh, a command to sin, and they can still uh, respond when I am, am doing something bad as well. And if I give them an unlawful order, they don't have to follow it. But then if I give them a lawful order, well, they should. Okay, so they're not, uh, they're not rebelling against the office of father. They're not disobeying that office. They're submitting to the office of father. And insofar as I am properly administering that office, insofar as I'm actually fulfilling the job description of father, they are to submit to me. And that's the idea here. Now, and that's where Rutherford will go on to say that the power of the person and the power of the office are two different things. And this is just so important here because think of it this way. The power of the person is simply referring to what they are capable of getting away with, what they are capable of physically doing, how much money they have, how much influence they have, how many soldiers they have, how strong they are. All those things simply refer to what a person could do, what they could get away with. But the power of the office determines what they lawfully may do. When we talk about the power of the office, we're talking about what they are allowed to do, regardless of whether or not they actually had the capability of doing it. Because you can probably see a situation where a person has the authority to do something, but they physically can't do it for whatever reason. Um, you know, you might, even like during, a, during an actual rebellion or a civil war or some kind of a military coup or something like that, like the lawful ruler has the authority to punish treason, but no one's listening to him because they've been bribed or because, um, you know, a foreign country is taking over. Um, but you also have a situation where, you know, the, the president of the United States has immense power, a lot of military power. I mean, nuclear power too, right? But he doesn't have the authority to just unleash that power on his own citizens without, without due process without going through some, some seriously important steps, right? So uh, his office prevents him from using all of what he's capable of. Simply because he can do it doesn't mean he is authorized to do it. So Rutherford says that he reminds us that all tyranny is illegitimate and does not come from God. And he says this, quote, Those who resist the power of the ruler in things that are just and right will merit damnation for themselves, end quote. So this, this helps us to understand that Rutherford is not a, re- a rebel here. He's not trying 
to encourage rebellion. I mean, he makes it very clear. If, if you are resisting the power of the ruler, and, he, and he's doing things that are just and lawful and right, and you resist that, you deserve damnation. I mean, there's no stronger language that, that Rutherford is giving for, for rebellion. But he's, he's also making it very clear that there is a distinction between the office and the person. And he says that a ruler who does not wield the sword for the good of the people may be resisted in those instances of tyrannical behavior. Because at the end of the day, the person who holds the office is either fulfilling that office or they're deviating from it. There's a job description in every office and either they're satisfying that description and adhering to it or they are deviating from it. Now, when a person is fulfilling that role, our duty is to submit and to obey because they're doing what God ordained them to do. But when a person deviates from that role, they're acting in a way as a private individual. They're not acting in accordance with their office. They are now stepping outside of their office and acting privately and taking advantage of the strength and power and capabilities that they have, but they don't actually have the lawful authority to do that. And in those instances, um, that person can be disobeyed. So that is chapter 18, making that distinction between the person and the office. Now chapter 19 is the question, is passive obedience to tyranny the only option offered by scripture? And is flight or fleeing a mode of resistance? Okay, see that's an important question. If we're presented with tyranny, do we just roll over and take it? I mean, do, what do we do about it? And there's some important points to be had there. And that is a key question. So in Israel, some, uh, some of the trials that the Israelites went through, they were commanded to endure patiently. And one example of this is in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 21, 1 through 10. The prophet Jeremiah tells Israel that they are not to resist Nebuchadnezzar. They're not to resist Babylon. Babylon's coming. Babylon's invading. Nebuchadnezzar is going to take over. And the, the people of Israel, the leaders, uh, they're asking Jeremiah, well, what does the Lord say? Sh you know, prophecy for us. Should we, should we resist? And in this instance, Jeremiah is saying, God is not with you at this point. All you can do now is submit, uh, surrender, and humble yourself. And God will actually bless you if you do that. But if you fight, God is not with you. God is fighting against you because of your sin. So at that time, the, the time for resistance was over because of Israel's sin. And they were commanded to endure patiently. Uh, even, the, you know, obviously the unlawful invasion of a foreign king against the, uh, the people of Israel. Now, some trials, uh, the Israelites were commanded to resist. And this is back in the beginning, in the book of Judges, obviously God calls Gideon to resist the Midianites who are oppressing them. And so they raise up an army and, and they fight. So there's times, so neither suffering nor passive non-resistance are concrete commandments that are required at all times. Uh, now the question comes up, well, what about Jesus Christ? And 
and, and the suffering that he accomplished because he did not resist. He didn't even open his mouth to to resist. And Rutherford points out that that is a very unique situation. Um, there are things that carry over to Christians today, but we have to remember that Jesus was there for a purpose. His mission was clear, and he didn't even he didn't even open his mouth to um, cry out against the injustice that he was facing. He did not appeal to anybody. Okay, he was he was doing this purposely. Uh, he didn't flee. He didn't fight, and he didn't petition. He didn't have a redress of grievances or anything like that. Now, Rutherford recognizes that in following the example of Christ, there are instances where we should suffer as Christ suffered. And this is in the name of and for the sake of Christ, our Lord. So if we are being targeted specifically for that reason, then it is incumbent upon us to submit and to suffer uh, and to not resist in those instances. But he gives several caveats for that. First, he makes it clear that uh, we see in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus himself even commands his followers that if they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. So Jesus is not saying, well, if they persecute you, just roll over and die and take it. No, in that moment, we're, we're being told to do something that Jesus himself did not do because Jesus is fulfilling a certain purpose. He needs to pay for the sins of his people. He needs to die in Jerusalem. He needs to be crucified. But his people are called to proclaim a gospel message. They're to proclaim that message throughout the whole world. So fleeing is important because flight is part of that. By fleeing, we are necessarily moving to other parts of the world and proclaiming the gospel message. So our missions are different. And so for that reason, flight is a legitimate um, response to the Christian. Even for being persecuted for the name of Christ, we can flee and we should do so. So we shouldn't just passively roll over and die. And flight is a form of resistance because when your children run away from you when you give them a command or or whatever, running away is a form of resistance because you're preventing the person from doing what they want. You're preventing them from getting their clutches on you. So uh, it's a form of resistance. Now, in all cases of resistance, it can never be done out of revenge, idolatry, impatience, or anarchy. And Rutherford just makes that as a, as a, as a flat, blank statement. Um, all resistance must be done uh, for, in godliness and in good order. Uh, so, so in the example of being persecuted for the name of Christ, he would say that you can flee in that situation. But here's the thing. There's a lot of situations where uh, we are faced with tyrannical behavior, and it's not that we're being targeted for the specific name of Christ. Um, and he gets to that here real shortly, but he wants us to remember that no mortal power was ever given unconditional power by God. And God's law allows for self-defense in the Old Testament. God's law also requires that a person come to the aid of their neighbor when in distress. Now, self-defense does not always mean killing, but uh, under certain circumstances, it might be the only option. And there are times when violence must be used to repel 
violence, whether it is one man that's being attacked or an entire nation that's being attacked. And if there are times when it is okay for uh, one man to resist civil oppression, there are times when it is justified for an entire nation to resist a tyrant. But fighting should be defensive in nature. It still might result in destruction, but the ultimate goal is the preservation of life. Now, resistance must be against tyranny, not lawful authority. Um, And he gives the example of, well, when a convicted murderer flees the judge, the murderer is resisting a God-ordained power. But if an unjustly convicted citizen flees from a tyrannical ruler, that citizen is not disobeying God. Or else why would Peter leave prison? So Peter was arrested and was going to be executed. But the angel comes, removes the chains, and lets Peter out of of prison. And Peter goes on his way. Peter doesn't say to the angel, no, no, I'm submitting to the government authorities. I'm submitting to God-ordained authority. Not at all. So the angel's not sinning, and Peter's not sinning by fleeing. He's fleeing an unlawful act of tyranny, even if it's done by those who happen to be in power. Okay, now Rutherford goes on to say, he says, quote, Before a situation escalates to those dimensions, let me reiterate that flight from the tyranny of abused authority is also a legitimate means of resistance, end quote. So he goes on to say that flight creates a barrier between you and the tyrant. It creates a barrier of space and distance, and in a sense, time. But he goes on to say that if flight is not possible, there are other ways to create barriers. Uh, setting up a wall, uh, even an earthen mound, is just as much creating a barrier as fleeing is. Because um, setting up a walled barrier is an alternative to, f- to fleeing. In both cases, you're using earth as, um, as a barrier. It's just one is piled up and the other one is stretched over a long distance. And so setting up a wall against a tyrant is resistance just as much as using natural barriers, such as oceans, rivers, or land. At the end of the day, and the point here is, uh, Rutherford's making clear that petition is the first response that we make. If someone is doing something unlawful or unjust against us, we appeal. We appeal for a redress of grievances, and we ask the person to stop, and we call them to repentance. The second thing we do is we run away. We flee. And then the third thing we do is we set up barriers between us and the tyrant and we defend ourselves if need be. And all three of them are legitimate uh, responses, uh, especially when the tyrannical behavior is not specifically in the name of Christ or for persecution for the name of Christ. But even in those instances where we're being targeted as Christians and persecuted for our faith, we can still petition And we can certainly at least flee. We can definitely run away uh, and continue spreading the gospel elsewhere. But in those instances, we wouldn't fight. We're called to come and die uh, in the name of Christ after we've exhausted uh, the first two instances. But it does become different when the tyranny is different. And it also also differs based on your role as, uh, as a person. If you are a father or a mother, you have a duty to protect your children. So if you're being targeted as an individual because of Christ, that's one thing. But if your children are being targeted because of Christ, 
well, your job is to is to place yourself between um, the tyrant and the children and to protect the children. And that might mean um, running away or even fighting uh, to save your children if you have to. So definitely some things that we're going to have to flesh out more in future chapters, and Rutherford will address fighting in more detail later. But for now, I think that uh, he's made it clear uh, the line between when to resist and when we're not to resist, and some general principles that we're supposed to live by. So uh, hopefully that was useful to you, helpful to you, um, interesting to you. Again, if you haven't done so, please pick up uh, Lex Rex. The abridged version is much shorter, um, and I think that you'll find it to be a blessing. So thank you for tuning in. Hope you have a blessed week. And until next time, take care. Of you.